0: Part of the spirit and the culture of the U.S. military is the creed that you don't leave anyone behind, whether injured, captured, or dead. In fact, the U.S. Army Ranger creed, which is uh, the oath that Army Rangers take, includes these words, quote, I will never leave a fallen comrade to fall into the hands of the enemy. Salvatore uh, Junta, he goes by Sal, is a former staff sergeant in the United States Army. He was the first living person since the Vietnam War to receive the United States Armed Forces highest decoration for valor, the Medal of Honor. Sometimes it's called the Congressional Medal of Honor, but it's really called the Medal of Honor. Junta was cited, or was uh, commended, for saving the lives of members of his squad on October 25, 2007, during the war in Afghanistan, and for upholding the military principle that no one be left behind. We'll, We'll hear more about Staff Sergeant Junta a little bit later. But in the meantime, why don't you turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, and we'll be focusing our attention on verses 28 to 29. So as you turn there, let me go ahead and talk to you a little bit about the context of Colossians in in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians was written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Colossae, which was planted by Epaphras. Paul wrote this letter from prison to combat a false teaching that was starting in the church. This teaching was later called Gnosticism. So he's kind of addressing this teaching in the church, this false teaching, what we would consider pre-Gnosticism. The Gnostics believed that God was good and that spiritual things were good, but they believed that anything physical was bad. They denied the incarnation and deity of Christ because that was physical. They believed in a higher spiritual and secret knowledge, claiming that God had revealed something to them outside of the scriptures. So Paul is trying to write to the Church of Colossae, to address that. In chapter 1 of Colossians, Paul greets the Colossians in Christ in verses 1 and 2. He thanks God for them and for their faith in Christ in verses 3 to 8. He prays for them to be filled with the knowledge of Christ and to walk in Christ in verses 9 to 14. And starting in verse 15, Paul teaches them about the preeminence of Christ, that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh and that he is the most important thing in the universe. So let's read together Colossians chapter 1, and I'll be starting in verse 15, and we'll be going down to uh, verse 29. So Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and, and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God That was given to me for you and to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Let's pray. Lord God, we just thank you so much for this morning. We thank you that your mercies are new every morning. We thank you for your word, God, and how you use your word to equip us, how you use it to encourage us, how you use it to exhort us, to admonish us, and how through the application of your word and through the Holy Spirit, you use it to make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. And so we pray, God, that even now in this time, that I would step aside, that I could be a conduit for your word, and that your word would have its work In us we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so that's Colossians 1, 15 to 29. I'm gonna read verses 28 and 29 again uh, in the ESV and also in the NAS, okay? So Colossians 1, 28, 29, this is the ESV. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And now in the NAS, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Right, so you see the outline in your bulletin today, the outline that we're going to be going through. And the title of this message is Foundations for a Biblical Christ-Exalting Church. Foundations for a Biblical Christ-Exalting Church. And if you're taking notes, even put a parenthesis next to that title and add this, okay? So I, what I really wanted the title to be was Foundations for a Biblical Christ-Exalting Church Where No One Is Left Behind, okay? That's, that's the real title of the message, Foundations for a Biblical Christ-Exalting Church Where No One Is Left Behind. And I just felt like the pressure of the Twitter universe and all that kind of stuff to make a, a shorter uh, introduction. So that's why in your, in your bulletin it's a shorter, uh, a shorter title. But you see here the outline, the brief outline, and I've got a number of subpoints. but the outline that we'll be going through as we look at Colossians 1, 28, and 29 is number one, the message, number two, the method, number three, the manner, and number four, the motivation, all right? So Roman numeral one, the message, him we proclaim, right? The message is Christ. So Roman numeral one, the message, the message is Christ, right? In the NAS, it says we proclaim him, in the ESV, it says him we proclaim, The word in the original language for proclaim is katangelo, and it means to preach or to make known. It's not necessarily formal preaching. The word for that is euangelion, or euangelizo. We get the word evangelized from that word. And it's not heralding. The word in the original language for that is caruso. We see the word caruso used in verse 23 of the same chapter. But the word here that Paul chooses is the word katangelo, which means to preach or to make known. It means to communicate, to relate, or tell the truth about Christ. Synonyms would be to announce, to make known, or to declare, to proclaim, right? The message that we proclaim is Christ. And so Paul is reminding the believers here in Colossae and and reminding us that our main job is to proclaim Christ. I really like the ESV and the the New King James and how they put the pronoun in in the first position of the sentence. It says, him we proclaim. In the original language, in the Greek, The first part of the sentence is the position of emphasis. So the NAS says, we proclaim him. But in the original language in the Greek, it's more closely to him we proclaim. And so it puts emphasis and significance on Christ. So the ESV and the New King James are a little bit closer to the original language here. So letter A under Roman numeral 1, the message, letter A is we proclaim him exclusively. We proclaim him exclusively exclusively. Or singularly, however you want to put it. The message that we proclaim is Christ and Christ alone. We do not proclaim Jesus and Mary. We do not proclaim Jesus and Buddha. We do not proclaim Jesus and anyone. We proclaim him exclusively. John 14:6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 1 Timothy 2, 5, for there is one God... And there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. We proclaim him exclusively. Paul also doesn't say, we proclaim him, and also I think you should pray seven times per day. Paul also doesn't say, we proclaim him, and also you should take offering after announcements in your worship service. He just says, him we proclaim. The most important thing is Christ. It's not our methods or traditions of the church. The message of Jesus Christ must be the exclusive and singular message in our ministry. We do not proclaim Cornerstone Bible Church. We do not proclaim the beliefs of the elders. Right? We do not proclaim any other church or any denomination. Right? We love these men and we've learned a lot from these men, but we do not proclaim MacArthur. We do not proclaim Piper, Keller, Sprawl, Muller. Right? We proclaim Christ. Paul says it here in Colossians 1.28, and he says the same thing in 1 Corinthians one, 1 and 2. And he says this, and when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. Verse 2 For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Right? So, the message that we want to proclaim as a church, the message that we want our ministry to proclaim, is Christ. Right? Otherwise, it becomes about proclaiming our methods, methodology. It becomes about proclaiming our culture, our preferences. And even though in some cases we might have some of these things in common at Cornerstone Bible Church, we don't want those things to be what binds us together as a church. We want our faith in Christ and his love for us to be be what binds us together and what defines us as a church. We proclaim him exclusively. Letter B, we proclaim him exhaustively. We proclaim him exhaustively. You could also say comprehensively, completely, or accurately. Let's take a look at the context of this passage to see what about Christ in particular Paul is proclaiming. Number one, this is sub-point B, we proclaim him exhaustively. Number one, underneath that, the preeminence of Christ in everything. Let's take a look at verses 15 to 20 again with me. The preeminence of Christ in everything. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That word for image, I love this word for image. In the Greek, it's icon it's icon right and you think about your desktop your computer at home right and you want to open up a program like microsoft word and you click on an icon right and that icon launches the program right and so you're now in microsoft word right that's what paul is saying christ is the icon of the invisible god he is the icon you click you know i don't want to you know i don't wanna, I don't want to make it like trite but you click on christ and you see god right verse 15 he is the image the icon of the invisible god the firstborn of all creation By the blood of his cross. So we see here in verse 15, the deity of Christ, the preeminence of Christ. In verse 16, we see his creative power, his his eternality, his dominion. In verse 17, we see his sustaining power, his preeminence again. Verse 18, his headship over the church, his, his eternal existence, and his preeminence again. In verse 19, we see his deity yet again. We see that Christ is Savior, we see that he is the propitiation. And he is the reconciler, right? So we proclaim him exhaustively. We proclaim the preeminence of Christ in everything. Number two, we proclaim him exhaustively, the mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of his glory. I'll read through verse, starting in verse 21 again. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Here it is. Now rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and my flesh, for I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Verse 26. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of his glory. Then he says, him we proclaim. Right? So we see the second expansive category that Paul is proclaiming about Christ is the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of his glory. What does that mean? Christ in you, the hope of his glory. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. We'll look at a parallel passage that I think will help to explain what does this mean? Christ in you, the hope of glory, and this mystery. Ephesians chapter 3 and verses 3 to 6, a parallel passage. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation. This is Paul again. As I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it now has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of his glory, this mystery is the gospel message for Gentiles. That's us, most of us. That the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The message that we proclaim is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died on the cross for our sins and that we, and particularly we as the Gentiles, can receive forgiveness, righteousness, and a relationship with God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Again, John fourteen six. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Right? We proclaim him exclusively, and we proclaim him exhaustively. Romans 1, 16 to 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Right? Romans 1, 16, The righteousness of God is revealed, not just that God is a righteous God, but that his righteousness is given imputed, credited to us by faith. Notice that Paul says here that the righteous man shall live by faith. Right? It's not just that the righteous man is saved by faith, but the righteous man shall live going forward by faith. We live by faith every day. If you've never placed your faith in Christ, if you're not a believer, if you don't have the righteousness of Christ covering your sins, I'd invite you to make this day This day, the day of your salvation. We'll come back to that thought in just a second. All right, back to the text. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 28. Again, him we proclaim. I love how Paul summarizes himself in verse 28, right? He proclaims the preeminence of Christ and all these things in verses 15 to 20. And then he talks about making known the mystery that has now been revealed through Christ in verses 21 through 27. And then in verse 28, he just sums it all up and says, him we proclaim. Right? That's his summary. Him we proclaim. The personal pronoun him refers to the antecedent, which is Christ. And everything that Paul said in verses 15 to 20 and 20 to 20, uh, 21 to 27, we proclaim him exhaustively. Right? We're going to come back to this point when we get to the section on teaching. All right, letter C. We proclaim him indiscriminately. We proclaim him indiscriminately. So first we proclaim him exclusively, we proclaim him exhaustively, and now we proclaim him indiscriminately, which means we proclaim him to ourselves and to others. The proclamation of Christ is not just for unbelievers, not just for visitors, right? From verse 28, Paul targets everyone. He says it three times in verse 28, everyone. Pas anthropos, that's the, in the original language, pas anthropos, and he repeats it three times in verse 28. Let's walk back through the text a little bit here. In verse 27, the mystery is revealed to the Gentiles. Right? He's proclaimed it to the Gentiles. Verse 26, he says he's revealed it to his saints. It's proclaimed to the saints. Verse 23, the hope of the gospel has, has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Right? So all creation under heaven pretty much includes everybody. right? So we proclaim him indiscriminately. Right? And I want to focus on two groups this morning as we talk about who we're proclaiming Christ to. Number one, we proclaim him to ourselves, believers. Right? We proclaim him to ourselves or believers. We live in a performance-oriented world. Right? Students are graded on their performance. Good schoolwork, good test scores equals usually a good grade. Right? At work, we're graded on our performance. Good work, good production, you bring in good sales, you finish projects on time, Right under deadline, That equals favorable standing with employers. Hopefully a stable position, a stable salary, promotions, a bonus, being valued as an employee. We are performance-oriented in our relationships. If I'm kind to my friends and family, if I'm responsible, if I'm selfless, if I'm loving, if I'm patient, humble, then my friends and family will reciprocate, and I'll have good relationships with them. We live in a performance-oriented world, and this is our default mindset. The problem is that we carry this mindset over to our relationship with God. We think that if we're quote-unquote good Christians, if we go to church, if we read our Bibles, if we serve in ministry, if we pray, as long as we don't sin egregiously, then God. we think that God is going to be happy with us and that we'll be blessed. We think that if we perform well according to our standard of what a good Christian is, that we can earn God's favor. Conversely, if we have trials in our lives, if things aren't going the way that we had planned, if we're not feeling blessed by God, if we don't feel his love, then we assume that it's because we're not performing well enough to deserve his love. We're so conditioned from this world by this performance-based mindset that we project this mindset onto our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, and we assume that he grades us on our performance too. Brothers and sisters, nothing could be further from the truth. God does not grade us on our performance He grades us based on the perfect and finished work of Christ on the cross. And this is where we need to proclaim Christ to ourselves. We need to remind ourselves about Christ's perfect work on the cross. Jerry Bridges, in The Discipline of Grace, he says that we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day because the message of Christ is essential, not just for our salvation, but for our daily walk in Christ as well. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. We must exercise our faith in Christ every day. We must remind ourselves daily that not only are we saved by grace through faith, but we continue to walk in grace each day, covered with the righteousness of Christ. So number one, we proclaim him to ourselves. Number two, we proclaim him to others. Unbelievers, we proclaim him to others. People need to know the good news of Christ's work. They need to know that he has satisfied the requirement of a holy God for all time. They need to know that because because of Christ, God doesn't grade us based on our performance or our works. And people need to know the reality of hell. William Booth is the founder of the Salvation Army, and he has this quote, quote. This is from like the 1800s, so it's old English. I would that you could spend a weekend in hell and hear the shrieks and the groans of the damned in hell. I would that you could smell the burning flesh of those in torment. Then you would come back, preaching the gospel of Christ with greater urgency. Right? Unbelievers need to know the reality of hell. Right? What an awesome quote. Who says stuff like this? Right? William Booth does. I was so blessed this morning, even in our Our prayer meeting, as Jeff was leading our prayer meeting, he was saying, he was reminding us that we need to have an eternal mindset. We need to have a kingdom mindset, an eternal mindset. We need to believe and remember that that hell is reality so that we can proclaim Christ to unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So when you read this, when I read this, when I read this verse without an eye on eternity, without the reality of hell, right? I read this verse. It sounds very quaint. It sounds even, you could even say this sounds like Christian PC. It's politically correct, right? Oh, we're reconcilers, sowing a message of happiness and peace. Oh, we just go around saying, hey, God loves you. Would you be reconciled to God, right? It sounds very PC. But when you read this verse in light of eternity and with the reality of hell in your mind, right, with eternity stamped on your eyelids, then there is a passion, an urgency, a desperation to plead with people to beg them to be reconciled to God, right? So we need to preach and we need to proclaim the message of Christ with urgency to unbelievers. Jude verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Here it is, verse 22. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire to show others mercy with fear, hating even the garments snatched by flesh. Right? The ministry of reconciliation that we have to proclaim Jesus Christ is to save people, snatching them out of the fire. This is what Spurgeon says, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap leap to hell over our bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with their arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go unwarned or unprayed for. So we proclaim him indiscriminately to believers and to unbelievers alike. Letter D, we proclaim him corporately. We proclaim him corporately. Back to verse 28. Right? Paul uses the first person plural personal pronoun we twice in verse 28. Right? He uses the word we twice in verse 28. In the preceding verses, in describing his ministry, Paul uses I. Right? I had to look this up. First person singular pronoun, right? You see it at the end of verse 23. He says, I. He says it twice in verse 24, I. And again in verse 25. But in verse 28, he switches to the, to the plural, we, right? And then in verse 29, if you look at it, he switches back to I, the, words, the singular word I, right? But we proclaim him corporately. The message that we proclaim Christ is to be done corporately as a body. It's not just the pastor, it's not just who happens to be standing here. It's not just the leaders. It's not just the elders. It is the entire body corporately proclaiming Christ. We'll come back to this point at the end of uh, number four, point number four, the motivation. We'll come back to this point. But we proclaim him corporately. All right. Three more subpoints under Roman number one, the message of Christ. All right. So far we've only covered three words, but let's let's keep going. All right. Letter E. I'll go faster through these ones. Letter E. We proclaim him passionately. This is based on the definition of the word proclaim in verse 28, and it's based on what's at stake, right? People's eternity, hell, is at stake. We proclaim him passionately. We don't just make suggestions. Hey, if you don't mind, maybe you could come to Christ, right? If you have nothing better to do, maybe you can come to Christ. Maybe you can believe in Christ. We proclaim him passionately. We don't just make suggestions. We are to passionately and lovingly confront people with the message of Jesus Christ. We're trying to snatch them out of the fire of hell. Letter F, we proclaim him perpetually. We proclaim him perpetually. This is based on the verb tense in verse 28. The verb tense in the Greek is the present participle. And that means a continuous or repeated action. Right? We proclaim Christ. And not just that we proclaimed him once and you guys were saved, but we continually, perpetually, continuously, repeatedly proclaim Christ. We proclaim him perpetually. Letter G, last one. We proclaim him compulsively. We proclaim him compulsively. And this is based on the idea in verse 28 of this word presenting. Right? We present everyone complete in Christ. Right? The word present, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to this again later, but the word present implies that we have a stewardship. We have a responsibility to proclaim Christ. We proclaim him compulsively. So, the foundation for a biblical Christ-exalting church where no one is left behind, Roman numeral one, the message is Jesus Christ. Right? Here's application part one. Right? Application part one. Here's a question. What message are you proclaiming? What message are you proclaiming? Is it Christ? By your life, by your actions, your decisions in the words, are you making Christ known? Right? Just no. Know, I'm, I'm preaching this to myself too, Right? I'm preaching this to myself because I know I'm much more comfortable talking about other things, right? I'd much rather talk about Kobe Bryant's injury. I'd much rather talk about my favorite television show. I'd much rather talk about food or restaurants or my kids or anything almost other than Christ, But I'm preaching to myself, is the message that I'm proclaiming Jesus Christ, right? When people think about you, when people think about me, what is the message that they would say I proclaim, When other people around me, when my coworkers think about me, right? Would they say that Huey Dang, Dr. Dang, is about proclaiming Christ, right? right, That's application part one. All right, Roman numeral two, the method. The method, admonishing, warning, and teaching, right? How are we we to proclaim Christ? Paul says here, by warning, admonishing everyone, and teaching everyone. Letter A, warning or admonishing. The word in the original language is nuthateo, and it means to warn, to caution, to correct, or to instruct. It's a practical warning. There's a connotation of this word of, of something that's imminent, right? In the moment, real life situations, right? We admonish, we warn people with a practical application of Scripture through counseling, through encouraging, through correcting, through rebuking. This is where we get the term newhetic counseling. You guys may know that, that biblical counseling, newhetic counseling, is something that's near and dear to my heart. That's why in Colossians one twenty-eight, this is a good summary verse that explains the heart behind newhetic counseling or biblical counseling. Romans chapter 15 also does this. So t- turn with me to Romans chapter 15 and verse 14. Paul says this, And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish or to instruct one another in Christ. This is the same word in the original language, noutheteo, right? Colossians 3:16. We'll come back to this a few times uh, today. Colossians 3:16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. That's the same word teaching and admonishing noutheteo one another in all wisdom. And finally, 1 Thessalonians 5.14. 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Pastor Scott Ardovanus preached on this a few weeks ago. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle or the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. Remember, as Pastor Scott preached, if someone is living in sin, if someone is out of step or out of order, right, if they're neglecting their duties, we are called to humbly and lovingly admonish, warn, exhort them. I don't want to make a big deal out of admonishing or warning so much because it's supposed to be part of normal Christian life, everyday life. I'm fairly certain that here at Cornerstone, we don't do this enough. We make it too much of a big deal. It should be just kind of normal Christian life to admonish one another. The best analogy that I can think of is is of a parent who loves his or her child and warns them or admonishes their child out of love and concern for them. We're not talking about nagging we're not talking about being judgmental we're not talking about belittling we're not talking about admonishing them over areas of preference or gray, gray issues gray, gray areas but we're talking about humbly lovingly patiently confronting people over sin pointing them to the cross of Jesus Christ that's what the word means here's application part two have you done this have you shown your love for a brother or a sister in the church by admonishing them when was the last time you did that? Second part of that is, are you making it easy for people to admonish you? Right? Not like, oh yeah, I'm sitting a lot. It's really easy for people to admonish me. But what I mean by that is by your response. When people admonish you, by your response, do you make it easy for them to admonish you? Do you welcome that? Do you welcome people to admonish you? Right? Do you recognize that when people admonish you, it's an act of love? Or do you attack them? Do you criticize their efforts? Do you accuse them of being harsh and judgmental? Do you rationalize your sin or, or justify it and say it was just a misunderstanding? Right? Are you making it easy for people to admonish you? All right, the first part of the method is admonishing or warning. The second part of the method is teaching. Letter B, teaching. Didasco. We teach. Sunday service. Sunday school. Equipping hour. This goes along with what Francis was was. Um, announcing today about the return of equipping hour. The word in the Greek is Didasco and it means to instruct, to explain, to deliver or truth, to teach. Right? We get the word didactic from that. Teaching lays a foundation for our lives. In order to have a good practical theology, you must first have a good theology. What we understand and what we believe determines how we live. The main reason that I can speak to you this morning, the reason that this makes any sense, is that you believe, I believe, we believe, that the bible is the inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word of god and that it is sufficient for salvation and godliness. that's why we can teach from god's word, not from our experience, but from the word of god. hebrews 4:12 for the word of god is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge with the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 2 timothy 3:16 and 17 all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So, this is the heart of your leaders at CBC. This is the heart of the pastors. This is the heart of the elders and the caregiver leaders that the teaching of the Word of God in conjunction with the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives would produce fruit, that you may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And can I just revisit Roman numeral one, letter B again for a second, right? We proclaim him exhaustively. That's what we're gonna revisit that one. We proclaim him exhaustively, right, or comprehensively. I think this next part falls under teaching a little bit. We are charged with declaring to you the whole counsel of God, Acts 20, 27, right? Paul's example. He did not shirk from teaching them the whole counsel of God. That's our task. Can I warn you about this? Be careful about men who would teach you only about their favorite doctrine, or only about their favorite part of Christ. We need to proclaim him exhaustively or comprehensively. Let me tell you about a friend of mine who's a tennis player. He's won or been runner-up in a few tennis tournaments. You've probably heard of him. He's right-handed. He plays with a Wilson tennis racket. He wears Adidas tennis shoes. I'm not sure if he has any endorsement deals or anything like that. But he plays with a two-handed backhand. He can also hit the slice one-handed. He can hit with topspin or flat with pace. He can hit down the line or cross court. He has great court coverage. He can serve and volley. He can stay back and rally from the baseline. Right? This is a friend of mine. I'm talking to you about a friend of mine. I'm talking to you about, of course, Hyun Sa. Now, as far as I know, as far as I know, that was a, I even texted him about this. As far as I know, that was a completely true and accurate description of Hyun's tennis abilities. Right? I've played with him before, I know. But did I do justice in explaining who Hyun is to you? Right? If you ask me, who is Hyun Sa? If you ask me, proclaim Hyun to me, and that's what I told you, is my answer complete? It's not, right? I would have to tell you more. Right? I can't just tell you about this little part, my favorite part about Hyun. It's not my favorite part, but I can't just tell you about my favorite part about Hyun, right? that he's a good tennis player. right? No, I'd have to tell you that Hyun is a faithful and humble brother in Christ. He's a wonderful and loving husband and a father of four amazing kids. I'd have to tell you that he's one of the elders of my church and that he works as a physician. If I wanted to be complete, I'd tell you that he's a big Redskins fan and he believes that Robert Griffin will be back to lead the Redskins next season. There's a lot more to Hyun than his tennis-playing ability. Brothers and sisters, be careful about men who would teach you only about their favorite part of Christ or their favorite part of the gospel. Be careful about a reductionist gospel. A reductionist gospel is a gospel that's limited to only one part, right? If I taught you a gospel that was only based on repentance, and I just proclaim repentance only, repent, 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 and I didn't talk about the other aspects of the gospel, that's a reductionist gospel. Likewise, if I taught about the gospel and just talked about grace only, grace, 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 and I didn't talk about the other aspects of the gospel, that's a reductionist gospel. What can I say that is bad about the grace of God, right? Nothing. I can't say anything bad about the grace of God. It is amazing. It is everlasting. It is salvation giving. It is expansive and lofty and generous and superabundant. It is full of patience and loving kindness. It is transcendent and irresistible, right? You cannot exhaust the superlatives to say about God's grace. And there is much spiritual benefit to be had by meditating on the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We should preach on grace. We should discuss it. We should study it. We should read books about it. We should sing about it as we have. We should thank God for it. But if we talk only about grace, then we haven't done justice to the gospel or to the God of the gospel. You guys with me? Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not adding anything to grace soteriologically, right? Let me say without question, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone, period. But to proclaim Christ exhaustively and comprehensively, we need to teach about the holiness and wrath of God. We need to teach about the depravity of man. We need to teach about God's love and his mercy and his grace. We need to teach repentance and obedience and suffering and faith. We need to teach about hoping and waiting patiently and expectantly for Christ. We need to teach about Christ as Messiah, as the propitiation, as our Redeemer, as our Justifier, as our Savior, Lord and King. Not just the God of grace. So, Who can you trust to balance out all of these attributes of Christ and all of these facets of the gospel correctly? There's a lot of aspects to the gospel. Who can we trust to balance these out correctly? Who can you trust to properly emphasize the different aspects of Christ and the gospel appropriately? (coughs) Excuse me. Can we trust any one man? What about if he's seminary trained? Can we trust him then? How about a plural board of elders? Can we trust them to get the balance right? No. Right? No. Only God can get the message exactly right. But you know what? He's given that to us in his word. And that's why we're committed to teaching the whole counsel of God's word. And that's why we as a church are committed to expository preaching. We don't trust ourselves to get the balance of the gospel right. But God's got it right. Right? God's got the balance of the gospel exactly right. And it's all right here in his word. We just have to be faithful to teach it, all of it, from Genesis to maps. So, thanks. Somebody just got that. So the foundation for a biblical Christ-exalting church where no one is left behind. Roman numeral one, the message is Jesus Christ. Roman numeral two, the method is warning and teaching, admonishing and teaching. Roman numeral three, the manner. The manner is with all wisdom. Right? From back to verse 28. Him we proclaim, admonishing every man and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Letter A under that. Letter A, biblical wisdom trumps experience. If you've been in my care group for any length of time over the years, you've probably heard me say this. Biblical wisdom trumps experience. The word in the original language is Sophia. Right? We get the word sophomore from that. The wisdom that Paul is talking about here is biblical wisdom, not earthly wisdom. Let's contrast the two. Turn with me to James chapter 3. James chapter 3 and verses 13 to 18. Verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. There's a huge difference between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom which comes from above. Also, turn with me to to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and verses 18 to 25. Verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was pleased through the foolishness of the message preached, the gospel, to save those who believe. For indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So here's the contrast between the wisdom that comes from the Lord, God's wisdom, and the wisdom of the world. We have this tendency in our lives, right? We have an issue at work, we have an issue in our families. We want to seek after earthly wisdom, We want to find somebody who has experienced the same things that we experienced to get get wisdom from them. And there's nothing wrong with that. But our hearts need to be that first we turn to the word of God. First we turn to God's wisdom before we turn to earthly wisdom. God has made the wisdom of the world foolishness. Letter B. Wisdom includes patience. Wisdom includes patience. As we proclaim Christ, as we counsel one another, as we shepherd one another, Wisdom includes patience. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 again. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly or the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. This is Paul's exhortation to the church be a healing community. And he's exhorting them, have patience with all men. The word in the original language is makruthumeo. macro meaning big, long, long long-lasting. Thubos meaning temper, passion, anger, wrath. And to put together, it means being slow to anger, long-suffering, long-tempered, as opposed to being short-tempered. Right? Wisdom includes patience. Wisdom includes compassion. That's letter C. Wisdom includes compassion. Turn with me for a second to Matthew chapter 6. We, we see here an example of Christ and how he counsels, how he admonishes um, his, his believers, his followers. Matthew chapter 6. And I'll read uh, verses 25 to 34. Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. For this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory did not clothe himself like one of these. But if God so arrays the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more do so for you, O men of little faith? Do not be anxious then, saying, What shall we eat or what shall we drink? With what shall we clothe ourselves? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. We see here an example of Christ. He's counseling these people, and he knows that they're anxious, he knows that they're worried about their future, right? And I think it's a great example of Christ and and how he counsels people, right? Christ could be confrontational and harsh when called for. We see that when he confronts the Pharisees. He calls them a brood of vipers, right? He calls them snakes, right? He calls them tombs, right? But here, he's not like that. Christ is not like that here, right? We see here his compassion for them. We see here that he doesn't condemn them for their anxiety. He does command them not not to be anxious, not to worry. He does it three times in this passage here. But he doesn't strongly rebuke them for their anxiety. He doesn't say, you guys are living in sin, you need to repent. He could have, though, right? Their anxiety was not because of a rebellious attitude. It was not because of a lack of obedience, but because of a lack of faith. And we see here that Christ's compassion, he addressed their lack of faith by reminding them about God's care and love for them. So wisdom, as we counsel one another, as we proclaim Christ to one another, wisdom includes compassion. So, the foundation for a biblical, a Christ-exalting church where no one is left behind, Roman numeral one, the message is Jesus Christ. Number two, the method is warning and teaching. Number three, the manner is with all wisdom. Number four, the motivation that we may present everyone mature or complete in Christ by the power of Christ. Say it again. Number, number four, the motivation is that we, may, that we may present everyone mature in Christ or complete in Christ by the power of Christ. In the ESV, it says that. Back to, back to our text, right? Colossians 1.28. In the ESV, it says the word that. In the NES, it says so that. In the original language, it's a hina clause. Hina, it indicates purpose, reason the goal or the end point, right? It can be translated as in order that, right? Him we proclaim, admonishing everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, in order that we may present everyone complete in Christ. Letter A, our stewardship. I alluded to this before, our stewardship. The word present implies that we have a stewardship that we have been entrusted with by God. We have a responsibility as Christians and as members of God's church did you know that? Did you know that to a certain degree, your brothers and sisters' spiritual maturity is your responsibility? God holds each one of us partially responsible for each other's faith and maturity. Our stewardship is to present everyone complete in Christ. Right? The word in the original language here is anthropos, for every person. Colossians 3.16, again, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. You see, we are to teach and admonish one another. It's not just the responsibility of the pastors or the leaders. We all need to be trained and equipped in the word of God so that we can teach each other and continually remind each other about the word of the cross so that we can apply it to our lives and so that we can present one another complete or mature in Christ. Right? So this reminds me again of a Roman numeral 1G. We proclaim him compulsively. Right? That's why we proclaim him compulsively, is because we've been given this responsibility, this stewardship. It reminds me of Paul who said, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel because we have been given a stewardship. Letter B, our purpose. Right? So the motivation, right, that we may present everyone complete in Christ, letter A was our stewardship. Letter B, our purpose to present every person complete or mature in Christ. What is the purpose of proclaiming Christ, admonishing and teaching with biblical wisdom? What does the word of God say here? It says, the, does it say this? Let me ask this question. Does it say, is the purpose so that we can all have successful careers and, and happy, happy families? Is it so that we can all live comfortably and be happy? Is it so that everyone in the community will, community will like us and respect us? No, right? The purpose is so that we can present every person Complete or mature in Christ. Verse twenty nine, Paul says says this: "For this purpose also I labor." Paul labors. The word in the original language is agonizomai. There is a striving. There is a force. There is a sense of desperation, intentionality to present every person complete or mature. The word for mature or complete is telios, and it refers to being perfect or mature. It doesn't mean without sin. It's not our goal. It's not to make sure that people don't sin anymore. Leave that to God. Paul's not talking about perfection. He's talking about Christian maturity, being full-grown in Christ. The goal of our ministry is not just to bring people to Bible study. It's not just to bring people to church. It doesn't stop there. The goal of our ministry is not just to bring people to salvation. It doesn't stop there. The goal of our ministry and the ministry of Cornerstone Bible Church is to present every person complete And spiritually mature in Christ. So what does that look like? What does it look like to be spiritually mature? A spiritually mature person knows and applies the word of God. He knows and is confident in the promises of God and in the gospel. And he clings to them during times of trial and when life circumstances and tragedy occur. That's what it's like to be spiritually mature. All right, that was letter B, our purpose. Letter C, our scope. Right? Under the motivation, Roman numeral four, the motivation. Let her see our scope. Just observationally, look at verse twenty-eight. Right? What is the one phrase that is repeated three times in this passage? Right? Everyone. Right? You guys see that? Everyone. Pas anthropos in the in the Greek. Every person. Right? Every person. We're talking about in the church. Every person. And every person means each and every person. There are no exceptions. We must teach everyone the truth and wisdom from the scriptures. The young, the old, the rich, the poor, the beautiful, the ugly. People you don't like. People that are not easy to get along with in the church. Right? They fall under the category of of every person. We must teach every person. And this is not something that your pastor, or your your leaders, your elders can do alone. So we see that not only is it the requirement to teach every person, but it is the responsibility of every person to do this. Presenting every person complete in Christ is such a lofty goal, is such a high standard that we must employ every person to do the work. Again, Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell in you so that you can proclaim it, right? Teaching, admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So, the motivation for proclaiming Christ, our stewardship, our purpose, our scope Right? Let's get down to letter D now. Our power. Our power. We're going to wrap it up here soon. You might be thinking at this point, Huey, on the one hand, you started out by saying that God doesn't grade us based on performance. You said that we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. You said that we're not only saved by grace through faith, but we live by grace through faith every day. And now on the other hand, you're saying that we have this enormous responsibility to agonizmi, right? To strive, in order to present every person complete in Christ. Right? We have to work, right? We have to strive. How do you reconcile these two positions? The answer is in verse 29. Paul says this, He strives according to his power, which mightily works within me. His power, in the, in the ESV it says energy. His power, Christ's power worked within Paul, and it works within us. This is the power, the the word in the original language is dunamis, we get the word dynamite from it. This is the power, the dynamite of the gospel. Again, Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the dunamis, it is the power, the dynamite of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The power that enables us to fulfill the stewardship is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth that he has satisfied the requirements of a holy God by dying on the cross for our sins so that we can receive forgiveness, so that we can receive righteousness and a relationship with God through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. This is the contradiction that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15.10. He says this, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Paul says here, he labored more than all the apostles. I worked harder than all the other apostles. And yet he knows that it was God's grace that enabled him, working through him. So, the message, we proclaim him. The message is Christ. The method, admonishing or warning and teaching everyone. The manner, with all wisdom. The motivation, that we may present everyone mature or complete in Christ By the power of Christ. So we end up where we began with the good news of Jesus Christ. He is the foundation for a biblical Christ exalting church where no one is left behind. As we strive to present every person complete in Christ, may we begin with the message of Christ and end with the message of Christ as well. Remember Sal Junta? Salvatore Sal Junta is a former staff surgeon in the United States Army. He was the first living person since the Vietnam War to receive the United States Armed Forces highest decoration for valor, the Medal of Honor. Junta was cited for saving the lives of members of his squad during the war in Afghanistan and for upholding the military principle that no one be left behind. Salvatore Junta distinguished himself conspicuously by gallantry and intrepidity at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty in action with an armed enemy in the Korangal Valley of Afghanistan on October 25, 2007. Many of you guys may know that my brother spent a year and a half in Afghanistan. The following is what the President of the United States had to say about Sal Gunta. Sal and his platoon were several days into a mission in the Korangel Valley, the most dangerous valley in northeast Afghanistan. The moon was full. The light it cast was enough to travel by without using their night vision goggles. With heavy gear on their backs and air support overhead, they made their way single file down a rocky, ridgy, a uh, rocky ridge crest, along terrain so steep that sliding down it was sometimes easier than walking. They hadn't traveled a quarter mile before the silence was shattered. It was an ambush, so close that the, tr- that the cracks of the gun and the whiz of the bullets were simultaneous. Tracer bullets hammered the ridge at hundreds of rounds per minute. Sal would later say that there was more than the stars in the sky, the tracer bullets. They saw more tracer bullets than the stars of the sky. The Apache gunships above it saw it all, but they couldn't engage with the enemy that was so close to the soldiers. The next platoon on the ridge over heard the shooting, but they were too far away to join the fight in time. The two lead men were hit by enemy fire and knocked down instantly. When the third man was struck in the helmet and fell to the ground, Sal charged headlong into the wall of bullets to pull this man to safety behind what little cover there was. As he did, Sal was hit twice, one round slamming into his body armor and his torso, and the other shattering a weapon slung across his back. This unit was pinned down. Two wounded Americans still lay up ahead of them. So Sal and his comrades regrouped and counterattacked. They threw grenades, using explosions as cover to run forward, shooting at the muzzle flashes still erupting from the trees ahead of them in darkness. Then they did it again, and again, and again. Throwing grenades, charging ahead, Finally, they reached one of their men. He had been shot twice in the leg, but he had kept returning fire until his gun jammed. As another soldier tended to his wounds, Sal sprinted ahead even more, at every step meeting relentless enemy fire with his own. He crested a hill alone with no cover but the dust kicked up with a storm of bullets still biting into the ground. And there he saw a chilling sight, the silhouettes of two insurgents carrying the other wounded American away. They were dragging him away one of Sal's best friends. Sal never broke stride. He leapt forward. He took aim. He killed one of the insurgents and wounded the other, and the other one ran off. Sal found his friend alive but badly wounded. Sal had saved him from the enemy. Now he had to try to save his life. Even as bullets impacted all around him, Sal grabbed his friend by the vest and dragged him to cover. For nearly half an hour, Sal worked to stop the bleeding and help his friend breathe until the medevac arrived to lift the wounded from the ridge. American gunships worked to clear the enemy from the hills and with the battle finally over, the first platoon picked up their gear and resumed their march through the valley. They continued their mission. It had been an intense and violent firefight as any soldier will experience. By the time it was finished, every member of the first platoon had shrapnel or a bullet hole in their gear. Five were wounded and two had lost their lives. Again, this is the president speaking, right? This is what he says. Now, I already mentioned I like this guy, Sal. And as I found out myself when I first spoke with him on the phone and when we met in the Oval Office today, he's a low-key guy, a humble guy, and he doesn't seek the limelight. And he'll tell you that he didn't do anything special, that he was just doing his job, that any of his brothers in the unit would do the same thing. Staff Sergeant Junta, repeatedly and without hesitation, you charge forward through enemy fire, embodying the warrior ethos that says, I will never leave a fallen comrade. Your actions disrupted a devastating ambush before it could claim more lives. Your courage prevented the capture of an American soldier and brought that soldier back to his family. You may believe that you don't deserve this honor, but it was your fellow soldiers who recommended you for it. Here is Sergeant Junta's response. Quote, if I'm a hero, every man that stands around me, every woman in the military, everyone who goes into the unknown is a hero. So if you think that's a hero, that's okay, as long as you include everyone with me. Junta insists that his actions were those of any other man in his unit. He says, In this job, I'm only mediocre. I'm average. I did what I did because in the scheme of painting the picture of that ambush, that was just my brushstroke. That's not above and beyond. I didn't take the biggest brushstroke, and it wasn't the most important brushstroke. Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. We collectively as a church, through proclaiming ourselves, through proclaiming Christ to ourselves and to our brothers and sisters, overcome our performance-based mindset and embrace the stewardship that God has given to us to present every person mature or complete in Christ by the power of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, God, that you have given us the truth of your word, and that by your sovereignty and by your wisdom, you've explained to us this mystery, which is Christ in us, the hope of the gospel. We thank you so much for the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, God. That we can no longer, that we no longer have to worry about pleasing you. We, we no longer have to worry about earning our salvation, that you've given to given that to us freely through Christ's spilt blood on the cross. God, we pray as Cornerstone Bible Church that you would help us, that you would enable us, that you would equip us, that you would motivate us because of what you have done in our lives, because of what you've done through Christ, that we would take this responsibility, that we would proclaim Christ with everything that we say, everything that we do, with our lives as individuals, corporately as a church, even as families, that we would proclaim Christ, that we would be known as a church that doesn't proclaim a method, that doesn't proclaim our pet doctrines, but proclaims the work of your son, Jesus Christ. God, so that we might present every person here, every person complete or mature in Christ. God, we know that is your goal for our church. We know that is why you have left us here, that we might do this work that you have left for us. We pray, God, that you would magnify yourself, that you would glorify yourself through Cornerstone Bible Church. We pray in Jesus' name.